This is the Fixplasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. Hey there, this was going to be one single big episode on Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow as part of the series I'm doing on fictional secondary worlds intruding on fictional primary worlds. Because the discussion I had with Scott went on for over an hour, I've chosen to split it into two episodes. So this first part is going to be Scott and me rambling for about an hour and ten minutes about various aspects of cosmic horror, the keen yellow, and really talking about what it would have been like if Lovecraft had never been picked up by Sandy Peterson. Instead, our foundational role-playing game was based on Robert W. Chambers. Here we go. Okay, listeners, welcome to Fictoplasm, uh, and this is going to be a sort of a, an interview stroke discussion with somebody who I've um, who I've big admire of, big admire of the podcast that... that He's part of with his two compatriots. It is Scott Dorwood. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Ralph. It's an absolute pleasure. Ages ago, I talked to you about um, the King in Yellow and the particular idea I had, and then, and then of course, I think things intervened. So um, we didn't talk about it at that time. But right now, uh, the good friends, have, you've got a multi multi episode series covering the King in Yellow. Um, pretty much uh, being broadcast right now, that's right? Uh, that's right, yes. It's a five-part series. So we started out talking about the book, The King in Yellow. We drilled down into one of the particular stories, The Yellow Sign, and then we've we've had a look at what other writers have done with it, what other games have done with it, and how the whole thing became part of the Cthulhu mythos. I'm, I'm conscious I don't really want to um, overlap with what you've done. And where I was coming from originally, I had this idea about talking about fictional secondary worlds mm. uh well secondary worlds that exist as fiction within fictional primary worlds so i've um this will be the third in a in in the series the other two being the land of laughs and um uh the magicians by Lev grossman and at some point i think i'm probably going to do mythago wood as well oh, yes that's yeah, that, that's going to be a, a little way off because, um, well, I've got I've got a quite a full dance card at the moment. But that's the basic idea, and, and I've got some ideas myself. What I wanted to focus on this one, though, and to get your input on it, was what would it have been like if Lovecraft never had never risen to the the prominence and the visibility in the uh, in the fandom that we see today, and instead it was Chambers. And how would that be different? Um, how would that have affected the Cthulhu mythos or, well, the lack of Cthulhu mythos, but what would it have replaced? And also, how would it have affected one of the most popular role-playing games of all time, I think it's fair to say, Call of Cthulhu is? Mm. Yeah. Does that sound reasonable? Uh, that sounds very reasonable. And, yeah, it's an approach that I, I found quite fascinating when you pitched it. The first thing I was, wanted to talk about, and I kind of like to like to get your take on it because I think you touched on it in the second of your episodes. Is is Chambers cosmic horror, mm. and do you do you have an opinion of that? Yeah, I I think very much that the King in Yellow stories, in particular, are rooted much more in Gothic horror, and that the elements yes. that we'd see as as cosmic are more window dressing. These uh, weird elements that he brings into the play, you know, the, these hints, these lists of names, these little snippets from the play itself, they've got all sorts of almost science fictional elements, uh, certainly cosmic elements to them. But 
I think ultimately that aspect has very little impact on the stories themselves. It's there for mood or atmosphere. And there isn't that that sense of the cosmic that you get in Lovecraft. I mean, of course, I mean, one thing I, we probably should do is agree what we're talking about when we say cosmic horror, because I, I think it's such a broad term and used in so many different ways that it's probably quite easy to talk past each other on this. Yeah, quite. I mean, when I was, when I was looking into sort of the definition of cosmic horror, I, I looked at the uh, science fiction encyclopedia, which is what I tend to look at now. Um, and uh, let's see if I can find it. But the, the definition of cosmic horror, a lot of it is by reference to Lovecraft in that he developed a particular style of cosmic horror and refined it as he went on. Um, and there's no mention of it in the uh, in the very brief entry on Chambers. So there's not a lot to go on there. What is your definition of cosmic horror? Yeah, it's like I say, it's a very tricky one to pin down. I think what lies at its heart is this sense of a combination of alienness and and vastness that is too much for the human mind to process or comprehend uh the idea that we are small and insignificant in a vast cosmos and the idea that the underpinnings of reality are too strange or big for us to really get our heads around you know the idea of an infinite universe and you know time that goes forward and backwards in such vast arrays that we can't even conceive of it these these to me are are what cosmic horrors is about and what lovecraft i think did a good job of in his stories was bringing those in as themes and elements not necessarily hitting us over the head with them uh but using them as you know as flavoring in his stories to build up that sense of unease that's pretty well aligned with what I think about cosmic horror as well. One of the things I wanted to say is that um, of the four stories in The King in Yellow, my favourite is The Repair of Reputations. And the main reason is its scope. And by scope, I mean uh, it, it, it goes beyond just a simple setting of a time and place and suggests multiple timelines, parallel timelines, and a forward future vision that is, in a lot of cases, quite despairing. And and maybe that's because I'm viewing it with the uh, 21st century lens and seeing that um, this tremendously prosperous New York of the 1920s is on the back of... uh, of, so, of xenophobia and, and, and racial segregation and some pretty awful stuff. But I think the, the idea about extrapolating a timeline like that, I think there's a case to say that um, Chambers opens the door to the idea of cosmic horror. Uh, and and I, I, I tend to think of the, um, of the King in Yellow and all the mentions of stars and, and the, the Lake of Harley, which I... I kind of liken to an allegorical, uh, liken to an allegory for the um, for the interstellar gulf, mm. uh, and, and making Car- making Carcosa something more than just a planet. Uh, it, it is a kind of it is a transition from from what we know as sort of solid and earthly and comprehensible to something that simply is not. And this this play that's that's dressing it up. The reason it's so sort of at once truthful and yet incomprehensible and frightening is because it it is 
as we say, utterly alien. And so those two words, sort of this this idea about the stars and the interstellar gulf and the alienness of what I perceive as the tattered king and indeed the other players, I think there's a case to say it's at least some cosmic horror. But I, I guess it depends which parts of the stories you actually think are the horrific elements, whether it's the... Um, the being chased down by unseen assailants and uh, being frightened by uh, an unstoppable force, or whether it's actually the ideas of the, that are presented in the play, which I think are much more interesting. I think as well, it, a lot of it depends on which parts the the stories you take as being true, because being gothic tales, I think a lot of this is rooted in the the gothic ideas of madness, and you know, very much in the case of Castaigne and the Repair of Reputations, we see concrete evidence in that story that he is highly delusional. Yeah, you know, the whole idea that he's wearing this this prop crown and believes it to be gold and that he's keeping it in this safe which is in fact a biscuit tin so you know we, we, we know we can't trust anything that he tells us is true and th- there's an interesting uh, call back to this in The Yellow Sign where th- th- there's a reference to Castaigne's suicide in that um, and that that means that it sort of places Castaigne as being part of the same reality as the Yellow Sign. But the Yellow Sign does seem to take place probably in, in 1890s New York. Um, you know, there, there, there isn't a date given, but I, I think it's, it's you know, reasonable to infer that from the other information. And therefore that suggests the 1920s is a delusion. And I, I, I totally agree. However... If you took a sort of cult idea, uh, K-U-L-T, as as there is one true reality of which there are many delusional Gnostic layers to the the earth, which is a a prison. And so you view all of those stories as different illusions over the same reality. There are common points throughout. I mean, there's, for example, he uses Washington Square more than once. He uses the fates more than once. There being uh, the, the, the fates appear in the suicide chamber, the lethal chamber, sorry, in the repair of reputations, and then they're being worked on by, um, I think it's Boris in the second story, the the mask. And uh, and so I kind of think, well, what if these are all actually true landmarks it's in Carcosa, whatever Carcosa is? Everything is a delusion. Most importantly, the um, the crazy organist, of course. Are they are they in Paris, as in the Court of the Dragon, or are, are they actually next door to our protagonist in New York in the in the Yellow Sign? So I'm I'm thinking about the these are these are kind of cardinal points of of Carcosa which are being reflected in multiple stories, none of which are trustworthy at all. And so the sensation that you actually have a reality beneath all of that, that again makes me argue that it's something more than just Gothic literature. But I don't know. I'm not a student of Gothic literature, so 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 I'm not the right person to be talking about that genre. I, I must admit, I'm not either. When it came to the discussion about this, I relied an awful lot on Matt Sanderson for it because he did English literature at university and he specialised in Gothic literature. So he managed to bring he managed to bring some fairly good insights to this. Um, but uh, I mean, as far as you know, this, this idea of you know these being different facets of this this vast Carcosa. Again, I I mean, I think. I, that's a fantastic reading of it, and I really like it. And from a gaming point of view, it it gives us a lot to play with. On the other hand, I'm not sure how much of that 
is necessarily what Chambers intended in his stories. Uh, I mean, the, the thing about all these stories is they're you know incredibly vague in terms of what Carcosa is, in terms of the elements of the King in Yellow. The only time we get any hint of Carcosa having any concrete reality outside the play is again you know, Castain talking about th- this book, the Imperial Dynasty of Carcosa, and. You know, we, we, we know that we can't trust what Castain tells us. I, I don't think there's anything else in any of the other stories that hints that there's, there's any actual tangible reality of Carcosa. In the, in the yellow sign, we see, you know, fog lapping up against the windows, which is likened to the, uh, the clouds on the Lake of Harley. But, you know, whether that is actually Carcosa or whether that's just the fact that you've got two people who have been driven somewhat mad by their exposure to the play, seeing the world through the lens of, of the play, I, I, I think is, is highly debatable. Um, but yes, I, I think you know what you're reading of it there is, I think, a fantastic way to look at it from a gaming point of view. And uh, I'd, I'd really like to really like to see that developed i think i'll think about it more from the point when i'm actually because my intention is is once i've finished that short run is actually to think about well what's the blueprint for inserting a fictional secondary world into a fictional primary world and i'll probably develop the thoughts a bit more at that point there is one thing that i think i should be very careful very clear on though and that i don't think i would have these conclusions if I had, if I wasn't aware of cosmic horror, it's impossible to be unaffected by all the other things that I've read and all the people I've spoken to and, and gamed with. So your your point that Chambers probably didn't intend any of that. If um, if Matt's the expert, I think it would be interesting to ask him uh, and, and you know, other people as well if the sort of playing with repeated motifs is um, is a particular feature of the literature of the time and that that is actually what um what uh, chambers was doing was that he was deliberately drawing links between the the stories with no real aim aim to the the end of it uh, just just because it was a stylistic choice i, I really have no idea myself I, uh, th- this is one of the perhaps frustrating things about Chambers as opposed to Lovecraft, which is we know so much more about Lovecraft and his motivations and how he created things because he had this huge network of people he corresponded with and left all this correspondence behind. Uh, But as far as I know, there isn't really a lot of that with Chambers. So when it comes to things like The King in Yellow, all we have to work with is the text itself. And, you know, it's it's such a small amount of stuff. Uh, You know, these four stories, these... uh, little hints and you know tantalizing bits of description in there 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 really isn't a lot there and, and you know it's it's made all the more complicated by you know as as you were saying the fact that you know lots of other people have built on this uh that it's been conflated with lovecraft and that other writers have then taken it in other directions and it's it becomes so easy to to conflate what other people have done with with Chambers's work with what is actually there on the page, so much so that it becomes almost impossible just to experience it for what it is itself. The the argument about sort of whether or not it's it's uh, cosmic horror, uh, as I said before, is affected by my experience of later mm. writers. 
So would cosmic horror have even been a thing without Lovecraft? I think maybe that's an easier question to answer. And then, then you could start to say, well, what would people have made of Chambers going forward without without Lovecraft providing that lens of, of cosmic horror and uh, the the uncaring void and the, the vastness of existence? And that That is actually quite a tricky thing, I think, because, I mean, obviously Lovecraft didn't exist in a vacuum. And, you know, there were other writers who were exploring similar themes. I mean, there were certainly lots of writers who influenced him, uh, you know, particularly people like Arthur Macon and you know, William Pope Hodgson and uh, Lord Dunsany. But the, the the sort of cosmic horror elements, the the cold, uncaring universe aspect of it, I think is is pretty uniquely Lovecraftian. Uh, because I mean, the, the other writers, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not an expert on them by any means, but I don't think the other writers were the sort of hardcore rationalists that Lovecraft was. I mean, what Lovecraft set out to do was write uh, horror that would that, that would scare an atheist. But the the other writers that he was influenced by and and who um, you know who existed within that that genre didn't necessarily come at it from the same point of view. So I think those elements that we see as being you know peculiarly cosmic horror maybe didn't originate with Lovecraft, but I think he certainly distilled them into what what we recognise today. I am reminded of the. Um... Uh, there's was it the House on the Borderland by William yes. Herbert Hodgson, and that has very much um, post-apocalyptic elements in it. If I wanted to to think about something where where there is a question about the the meaning to existence and the fact that, that the protagonist seems to pass through multiple ages of existence um, and to what is what looks like the end of the earth, it's not exactly cosmic, and there are certainly I don't think there are any deities associated with it, but that's that's the closest I think you come to the kind of scope of um, a time vastly beyond the the comprehension of man. And uh, but even that, it's not the same thing. Yeah, well, and I think the other sort of key difference between you know Chambers and you know Lovecraft's cosmic horror approach is a question of morality. In that, you know, Lovecraft's stories, I think, are pretty explicitly amoral. Uh, they yeah. they exist in a world where the normal conventions of Judeo-Christian morality don't mean anything. That they're of anthropological interest, but they you know they they don't mean anything at the larger uh, scale of the universe. However, I'd say that. Chambers's fiction, you know, including the King and Yellow stories, is inherently moralistic. That uh, you know, you've got uh, you know Castain in the Repair of Reputations, uh, who you know is is fueled by mad hubris and is is struck down towards the end, you know, with his evil deeds. Uh, you mm. have um, the end of In the Court of the Dragon is. You know, someone paying for his sins. It's it is. You know, it even uses a biblical quotation. You know, it is a fearful thing to fall into yes. the hands of a living God. Um, I and and even the yellow sign. Uh, th- this is something that I didn't think of when the good friends were doing their episode uh, on it. But there was uh, one of our listeners on on the Discord server that we have who pointed out something that I, I hadn't even occurred to me about the yellow sign. 
which is that it can also be seen as an allegory for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, because you have these these two relatively innocent lovers. Well, we'll talk about whether they're innocent in a moment, but but they encounter this snakeskin book in their library that tempts them with forbidden knowledge and you know causes their fall from <laughs> grace. And yeah, it. it yeah, when, yeah, when you see it in those terms, it does seem pretty obvious. But at the same time, also very much, I'd say, like in the Court of the Dragon, it's it is someone who, through their exposure to the King in Yellow, is then undone by their own guilt because the the artist in the Yellow Sign, you know, is obviously feeling guilty about his lost love Sylvia, who's buried in Brittany, who uh, yeah, he's he's entering into this unwise relationship with this young uh th- this young model uh and you know he he already knows that it's a bad idea and then you know through exposure to uh the king in yellow and the yellow sign it's like his guilt is made manifest uh and comes to destroy them i know you've uh, you've not talked you you kind of um said that they went into the more romantic fiction and were and, and that's pretty much the, the majority of what Chambers has, has written later. One of oh, the yes. things about that is, is they are essentially hopeful. Even, and, and I would say that, that almost because they are moral tales and you have people who are, who are being you know, punished, by, punished by their own misdeeds, that is in some ways a, a hopeful perspective. In, in that that bad deeds will be punished, but uh, and good deeds won't be. I think it's fair to say, although you might disagree, that there's not an awful lot of hope in Lovecraft, mm. which is kind of what makes what makes Lovecraft so remarkable. Yeah, no, no Lovecraft uh, is is not known for his happy endings. <laughs> I think, given that I wanted to talk to you about what would have happened if there had been no Lovecraft, but instead we'd embraced Chambers for our foundational horror role-playing games, which is a, a strange idea. And, and the more I think about it, the stranger it is. Mm. What would that role-playing landscape look like? Let, let's just assume as a thought experiment that actually, for some reason, the King in Yellow was fantastically popular and Sandy Peterson based an entire role-playing game line on it. What, that, what would that look like? Well, I, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing because The King in Yellow was fantastically popular. It was just fantastically popular in the 1890s. Yeah. Uh, so so um, by the time the 1970s came around, it was being rediscovered at that stage. So it's, it's perhaps not that dissimilar uh, you could imagine a parallel world in which sort of maybe even August Ehrlich himself, you know, instead of preserving Lovecraft's work in book form and founding Arkham House to do that, perhaps uh, you know, it did the same thing, but to bring the King in Yellow back into print because you know, at that stage it had fallen out of print for decades. And so it almost becomes a similar kind of thing. And, you know, at that stage, I mean, there were writers who were riffing on what Chambers had done in the same kind of way as Lovecraft, maybe not as much because Lovecraft had actively encouraged it. But uh, you, you had you know, writers like James Blish and Carlo Edward Wagner and countless others mm-hmm. who were writing their own King and Yellow stories. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily improbable well, sorry, let's not say improbable. It's not impossible to conceive of a parallel world in which you know, Lovecraft had been forgotten, but we had the same phenomenon around Chambers. What I think makes it much less likely is the fact that 
you know, while Lovecraft was a much less prolific writer, he was almost purely a weird fiction writer, or at least in yeah. his fiction writer, in fiction writing. But Chambers, I mean, Chambers wrote, what, 60, 70 books, uh, of which, uh, you know, a half dozen had weird elements. Uh, you know, the vast majority of what he wrote was romance and, and military fiction. So, you know, I, I, th- I think, um, yeah, people would have had to have seized upon those those few weird stories, uh, and and you know just ignored the larger part of his work. But again, you know that's that's not necessarily unlikely. It just well, makes I, it I different. I don't think that's I, I don't think that in itself is a is unlikely because because I think as you you guys said before, um, the King in Yellow is pretty much what people will remember of Chambers, even. Even though you can actually freely get freely some of the other things like the Maker of Moons and, and uh, some of the other weird fiction, it's it's the King Yellow and those four stories that uh, nearly all fans are going to are going to remember. I mean, I think it's interesting though it, it, the way that uh, in Call of Cthulhu we've drawn upon all of Lovecraft's work, and it, it's it's easy to look at Lovecraft's fiction and think of it as all being part of the Cthulhu mythos, but there are plenty of stories that he wrote which explicitly aren't, um, or at least, you know, have got no ties, and some which he, he very definitely said weren't Cthulhu mythos stories, or at least weren't tied in with his, his larger cosmology, like uh, the horror Red Hook, for example. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- that said, you know, the people who worked on the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game over the years have drawn upon all of these things and pulled them into, you know, this this larger cosmology and, and just made them all part of the mythos. And I think it, it would be interesting to imagine the same kind of thing happening with Chambers, that, you know, perhaps the role-playing game, when it's put together, does focus on those first, you know, four stories in the collection, or maybe even on the whole collection and draw elements out from some of the others there. Um, yes. Certainly in terms of setting, it would be very easy to draw upon particularly the Parisian stories and use those as, um, you know, use those as colour uh, for the game. But, yeah, I, I think certainly, even if not initially, over time, what we probably see is a similar kind of thing, where stories out of The Maker of Moons and you know, the, um, uh, the the Mystery of Choice and the other weird fiction collections and novels would find their way into this chambers role-playing game and if that happened i it would end up i think having a very very different flavor than call of cthulhu because i mean not only would you have this this moral aspect that's missing from lovecraft um but you would have uh, a romantic element there i mean lovecraft is his work is not only amoral, but it's largely devoid of emotion. Certainly it's sexless, it's aromantic. But Chambers is the polar opposite. His his stuff is, is you know, filled with uh, people falling in love at first sight, uh, pursuing improbable romances, you know, romances being the drivers for uh, going into these these various weird fiction adventures. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that I think would probably end up influencing the the game quite heavily. Uh, it, it'd be difficult to divorce it from that. I'm wondering whether that would be the case uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, okay, so I think in, let's let's say there's there's the idealized version of, of what would happen. Um, say logically, we have uh, people who are massive fans of Chambers, and as you say, they choose to 
um, homogenize it into one world or one one kind of overall concept and it has those themes and so in an ideal idealized version from a sort of our 21st century view of role-playing design we might actually include a lot of relationship stuff and the kind of thing actually you see in in games like Hillfolk, where you have networks of of people who have feelings about each other and seek emotional concessions from them i was thinking that the mask is very much like that with the love triangle um but my question is, would that have actually happened in the 80s? Mm. And because, so go, go ahead. Yeah, I think it could have. And I'm going to point at a very obscure RPG, which I've, I've talked about in other places. Dallas. Uh, yeah, Dallas, precisely. <laughs> uh, because th- this, this is a game that absolutely fascinates me. Because th- this came out in 1980. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at my copy of it on the shelf at the moment, uh, published by SPI. And it was a licensed role-playing game, uh, one of the first licensed role-playing games based on the Dallas TV series. And it is all about that. It is about relationships. It's about romantic entanglements. And it's this this isolated, weird little thing in the larger role-playing landscape, which doesn't really fit in. And... Yeah, all right. I mean, if, if we look at the way Call of Cthulhu came about as a you know a, as a project that sort of span off at least mechanically from RuneQuest, then yeah, you know, that that probably wouldn't quite fit. But you know, if Sandy Peterson or whoever else had decided they wanted to do a a Robert W. Chambers role playing game, they might have looked to something like Dallas uh, as an example. Um, or, or, you know, Greg Stafford, I mean, Greg Stafford did all sorts of weird and wonderful bits of game design in the seventies and eighties. And we think, yeah, basic he did uh, Pendragon, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Prince Valiant and, and yes. Ghostbusters and all, you know, all, all sorts of fantastic games. Yeah. And, and, you know, he definitely had a knack for tailoring rules to create a particular fictional style. Because Ghostbusters was, was my first, uh, it's probably the, 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 my first experience of a, a game where it was, uh, there was explicit um, there was explicit mention of your personality and what drives your character and your I think to a certain extent the relationships mm. with the other characters which I'd I'd not encountered before. So I guess if the argument is that it didn't go along chaosium lines, but it was influenced by another designer, then then that is entirely credible. It could be a uh, that could have happened. And one of the things, though, I'm thinking that the chaosium one, the, the counterpoint to the Dallas argument is the Stormbringer argument. I don't think that Stormbringer represents Moorcock that well. And it, it almost, there was this obvious attempt to do a taxonomy of Moorcock in the mm, same way yeah. that the taxonomy of Lovecraft was done by Peterson. And uh, it is different. I mean, it's, it, it's so obviously that it looks so similar inside the way it's been laid out. Uh, but the magic is not the same, the philosophy of magic. And, and you know, a number of writers have, in the in the years since, I think Lawrence Whitaker in particular, have tried to um, undo that and, and change the uh, the change the perception of the world of the Young Kingdoms to something that's closer to Moorcock's vision. Um, and, and I think it's it's not it, it wasn't terrible. I actually think Stormbring is a great bit of game design with the concept of demons, uh, but it is clearly not the same as the the magic that Moorcock was envisaging. Um, it just it takes it into a very particular direction, oh, yeah. and and so I and I think that sort of that that was done 
in a particular way where they laid out uh, we, we've got a yeah, we've got a premise I, of a bunch of characters who come from all over the world yeah we have definitely. a um a set of religions that they can follow and we have a set of different kinds of magic that they can do and then we're going to just stick them in adventures and i don't think that that i think it would be very hard to fit chambers to that template so it would have to be something a lot more like uh, dallas which I, I understand it kind of plays out a bit like um bit like a board game but also a bit like a bunch of playbooks is that a fair analysis yeah it's it's a very weird game i know i i seized upon dallas not necessarily as a, a full template for how such a, a chambers role-playing game might come together but just as an example of of how you know there were relationship-based games at the time uh, dallas is is a very weird game because i it's it's a competitive role-playing game uh, it involves tactical play that you're uh, you have conflicts with other player characters it's all pvp for control of resources which are usually non-player characters who you're trying to bring over to your side uh, for particular schemes uh, and you have end game conditions and victory conditions and stuff like that so i think you know those aspects of it wouldn't fit at all with chambers but you know the whole relationship set up and the fact that you have conflicts that are based on um you know seduction or intimidation or investigation you know uh, certain aspects of that i think would fit thinking about this and, and thinking about um less about the design of a chambers game and more about the absence of lovecraft um mm. how would that have shaped our gaming life oh gosh I, it wouldn't just be our gaming life. I mean, the whole—I think the whole landscape of twentieth-century horror would be completely different. I mean, it's uh, yeah, yeah. we'd have no laundry, we'd have no. Uh, pro- I don't know what Clive Barker would have been like. I mean, even Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King was hugely influenced by by Lovecraft, um, as as were any other number of writers. You know, there there was you know some of the greats of uh, weird fiction and and horror fiction in the early twentieth century who got their start because they were mentored by Lovecraft. So people like Robert Block and Fritz Lieber. Uh, so, yeah, and I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know what 20th century horror would have looked like without Lovecraft. I think that's going to be possibly too big a question to untangle. Yeah. Moving, moving maybe to a slightly easier one then. Um, I, uh, I assume you've uh, at least read the preview of The Yellow King, the Palgrain. I haven't, I'm afraid. I, th- this is a huge oversight on my part, but I couldn't afford to back the uh, uh, the Kickstarter when it came out, so I, I, I've yet to actually see the Well, I, I didn't back it either, which I, I, th- I don't know what was going on at the time. I think I was just suffering a bit of Kickstarter fatigue, and I, I kind of regret it now, but there is a, uh, a taster out on drive-thru that you can read for free, and it's really comprehensive for one thing it's really interesting you get these four different worlds that you can talk about fascinating for a couple of reasons regarding this conversation one of them is that um you know robin laws has got two two big properties uh really there's the there's of course the the trail of cthulhu and the gumshoe system and then there's the drama system and we've just spent some Mm -hmm. time talking about the interpersonal relationship aspect of chambers but it's the gumshoe system that the the king in the yellow is is focused on, with I believe a tie into some of the skullduggery mechanics from the Dying Earth role playing game. But uh, that is the direction that they've taken. So it's not actually that okay. far from Call of Cthulhu, which I think is interesting and and kind of shows how how difficult it is to separate chambers from or separate the king in yellow from Call of Cthulhu and cosmic horror. 
that's interesting because I'm thinking about those core King and Yellow stories. They're not really investigative at all. So um, I, you have other Chambers stories, which definitely are. Uh, but you know some of the stories from the the maker of moons uh, in search of the unknown uh the tracer of lost persons so I mean, those all involve investigations so i mean again if we're looking at this idea of of what would have happened without lovecraft it's is not impossible that we'd have an investigative uh, chambers game but you know, if we're looking very much at the corking and yellow stories yeah i i think the only reason that we might you know, as 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 Robin Laws has done there, that we might bolt that onto an investigative framework is simply because it's what we're used to from Call of Cthulhu. And I, I, admittedly, I think there's probably an argument to be said that a lot of Lovecraft stories aren't necessarily investigative. I mean, there, there are certainly you know stories that are, but I think the structure of Call of Cthulhu and you know what what we see in the game there probably owes a hell of a lot more to August Ehrlich than it does to Lovecraft. Well, I, I think you made a fantastic point when you covered um, uh, the, the Dunwich Horror, which was that is so much more of a Call of Cthulhu adventure mm. than the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, yes. It just doesn't have such a, a snappy title. That's the problem. This is a really important point because any role-playing game, you've got to have an idea about what your characters are going to do. And, and we do latch on to investigative horror because... I think it's actually a really good format. It satisfies an awful lot of people and their, their need for mystery and the sense of achievement by actually going to places, talking to people and uh, finding information out. Uh, and so I don't think it's really surprising that an awful lot of role-playing games work like that. In fact, it's probably reasonable to think that um, even a, a, even an exploration game like Dungeons & Dragons, you are, a, you are still doing an investigation of sorts, although it's usually... Uh, Often it's reductive and, and goes down to, well, we're fighting things and then doing problem solving. Yeah. yeah, I think horror is particularly well served by an investigation uh, because a lot of horror, particularly cosmic horror, does seem to be about revelation. It seems to be about uncovering horrible secrets, horrible truths that you might not want to know, but it is still about uncovering them. And investigation gives your character a reason to engage with that mystery to to open those doors into darkness you know to read those those scary books to put together the pieces and and see the whole horror picture in a way that you know brings the horror alive there's yeah, I, I think there are definitely other models for horror. I think you know, survival horror is a, a big one where it's much more reactive. But if you're looking at a proactive game, yeah, some elements of investigation are you know, pretty vital to the process. And, and I think this this idea about sort of consent, I agree to step over the threshold because my curiosity overrides my survival instinct, is is really important. Whilst we're whilst we're talking a lot about the the moral factors in in the King and Yellow and the uh, and the connection in, in Chambers and, and the way that interpersonal relationships matter but also this idea about salvation and and uh, uh, or being damned or not is important i think we've got this point about consent of reading the play in the first place and in some cases the, it seems the characters they don't really uh they they're conscious that they shouldn't be reading the play and yet they do they can't stop themselves now there are excuses for that that suggest that, uh, yeah. oh, it fell out. It just happened to fall open like that officer and I read it by accident or something like that. But it's, it, it's that kind of thing. It's, there is a certain yes. amount of consent there. <laughs> Did you ever read the, um, 
some of the follow-up graphic novels or comics to for Hellraiser. Yes, a long time ago. I I cannot for the life of me remember any of the details, but yes, I, I did pick up a few of the collections when they came out and read those. Well, the, the thing that the thing that made me think when, when I was thinking about all of this, one of the things I was thinking about in terms of consent is. It's an awful lot like solving uh, Le Marchand's uh, boxes, mm. the Lament configuration. You know you probably shouldn't do it, but it, there's something irresistible and fascinating about it, and then before you know it, you are damned. And, of course, those, those stories, yeah. it is possible to dodge the punishment or be, be forgiven because it was an accident or, or various other things. But one of them I remember from the comics is that the, um, the Lament configuration appears as a crossword puzzle that's solved on a train. <laughs> So you solve the yeah you solve this crossword puzzle and you know that that takes you straight to hell, and that's oh wow that that's uh, yeah I think there were a number of, number of these and I can't remember where I saw it but it was uh, it was just talking about this, this set of panels with this guy in the carriage just, just commuting and solving the crossword puzzle and that. yeah and that 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 is very much going against the the theme of Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart isn't it where it is something you actively seek out and invite. You know, where, where you've you've got Frank who has you know searched the earth for the the puzzle box and and you know worked hard to solve it. You know this this isn't something he stumbled into. I'm I'm wondering if you go back to a role playing game and, and things that the characters are doing, they're consenting to read this book. Uh, some maybe accidental, but there's a bit of curiosity there, and they they are agreeing to step over the threshold. That's possibly the one thing that joins most protagonists together. Would, would you well that's my my proposal do you think that's fair to say yeah that, i mean that's interesting i again i guess it it depends how much you look at it from the call of cthulhu model because yeah i, I guess there are analogies to the way cthulhu mythos as a skill works in call of cthulhu and you know the fact that you do gain this corrupting knowledge by reading all these forbidden te- texts but at the same time they they seem to be notably different in the effect they have to the king in yellow where they, i mean instead of it being a sort of slow accretion of of details that you piece together and you know, perhaps give you unwanted insights into the universe this seems to be something you know th- th- this seems to be like a lightning bolt striking from the heavens that just transforms you but if we're looking at this from a from the point of view of a pure purely chambers game do we do we assume that reading the book is an essential part of that or is it you know more like the call of cthulhu aspect where you know you don't necessarily have to have read the necronomicon i you know it, it goes back to the question i i think you touched on a little while back of what do the characters do in the game? Are the characters all, you know, people who have invited doom upon themselves by reading The King in Yellow? Are they people who are in the number of, of other people who have? Um, if we take, uh, you know, Castain's delusions as truth or, you know, embrace the idea that you have, a, you know, these are giving you different viewpoints, different facets into the larger world of Carcosa, you know, are they people who are exploring that aspect of it? Um, so, you know, it, 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 it could be a more Call of Cthulhu-like experience there that you're not necessarily, you know, inviting that madness and delusion upon yourself immediately, that it becomes more of a slow unfurling. I, I, I think, you know, for, for game design reasons, it would have to be that. And I think more to the point, um, my, my feeling with, the, with, with what we have to go on, which is, you know, four, four stories, we have the case where the characters have read the book 
I read the play and then they have uh, invited the King in Yellow into their life somehow and that has shown up the flaws in their life and uh, they they are somehow punished if that's if, if punishing is what they they should be or whatever you can't really start a role-playing game un- unless as you say by consent where everyone is down from the outset that would be I mean that oh, I have played examples of that and and uh, done right it, it's terrific um, but I think that it would tend towards the much more optimistic way Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, is compared to the the, the original Lovecraftian stories. Uh, so you would you would have a I think you'd almost have a certain uh, reward structure. So you have um, you have the ability to survive and win, and even if. Um, I think I'm right in Call of Cthulhu, winning, quote unquote, is uh, is you get your sand points back. Some of them, if you if you if you defeat the terrible thing. Now, how, and and traditionally, we expect that there must be a reward for this behaviour, and and so with that in mind, an '80s game designer, how would they approach that? I think it'd be a very, it would be a very hard sell to sell something. You start off with uh, you know down to all eternity and uh, it goes downhill from there that's kind of going to be difficult to sell it it certainly won't sell an awful lot of scenarios or well maybe it would i think there's a different way we can look at this which is you know call of cthulhu as a role-playing game uh, you know as, as i mentioned before doesn't on the whole model lovecraft stories it it models derlith much more and let's say for argument's sake that we're we're in this parallel world where lovecraft was forgotten and you know there'd been this chambers resurgence in the 1970s um or possibly even earlier i let's say that the person responsible for that was august derlith uh because I, I think in a lot of ways, Derlith mm-hmm. would have been a better fit for Chambers than he would have for Lovecraft. Because you know, when when Derlith expanded and and reinvented the Cthulhu mythos and named the Cthulhu mythos, he put his own stamp on it, which was a moralistic stamp, uh, which you know, was always a very poor fit for 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 the Cthulhu mythos, but would have been absolutely perfect for Chambers. So, you know, let, let's say that Derleth had been drawn to Chambers instead of Lovecraft, had, you know, founded Arkham House, or or let's say that he called it Carcosa Press, I mean, even though that was Carl Edward Wagner's mm. uh, imprint. Um, but <laughs> let, let's say he founded Carcosa Press in 1947 or 1950 or whenever to, to bring Chambers back into print, and had done for Chambers what he, he did for Lovecraft and sort of expanded upon his, his creation and turned it into something new. I mean, by the time it had been through that uh, that Derleth filter, you'd probably have something far more RPG-friendly. Um, yeah, <laughs> having having read some Derleth recently, or reread some Derleth recently for the first time in decades, yeah, I dread to think what that might look like. Uh, he was not a gifted mm. writer, but he, you know, he did sort of humanize a lot of aspects of it. He turned it into rip roaring adventure. Uh, he had, you know human beings who were capable of taking on gods and and performing all the right rituals to uh, to to bend you know all these horrors to their will um and 
I, yeah, I, I can just imagine him doing the same with Chambers and, you know, yeah, coming mm. up with the rituals to read the King in Yellow safely and, and you know, uh, gain its knowledge that way uh, to, you know, open gateways into Carcosa, mm. you know, go, go through there and punch the King in Yellow in the face. Um, <laughs> so... So, yes. so yes, I mean, I, I can see that RPG existing, and I can see it actually becoming quite popular in exactly the same way as... What do you call that? Two-fisted Carcosa. <laughs> I think that'd be quite good. Yes, yes, I, th- I, I think that would work quite well. <laughs> I think you made a reference to the fact that sort of all these, all the characters tended to be sort of fit and fairly active outdoors types mm. in, in chamber stories generally i mean that is a perfect fit with the with the pulp archetype oh yeah i mean there, there are there are plenty of characters in chambers who are very pulpy i mean he, he, he's got you know um the, the archetypal characters for chambers are you know artists who are also outdoorsmen who like fishing and hunting and and butterfly collecting he, he, he was really into butterfly collecting and that pays plays a big role in some of the stories like the the purple emperor um uh, but you know, he's, he, if you go into uh, books like Into the Unknown, uh, sorry, In Search of the Unknown, then you have sort of, uh, I guess, borderline mad scientists and you know eccentrics there who would fit very nicely into more pulpy Call of Cthulhu style games. Uh, if you bring his military fiction in, you've got all the you know the soldiers and spies in there. Uh, you've got you know and some of his stories, you know, characters who are sailors, um, you know, students of all sorts, uh, even a pathologist at some stage, occultists. Uh, so I, I think you know if you take these these protagonists or supporting characters as as the basis for player characters in a um, you know this kind of game, you've got probably as wide a spread, if not a wider spread, than than you know you you have from Lovecraft. Well, I, I think I think the difference is that there would be more emphasis placed on the arts. Um, that you, know, you you do have artist type characters who crop up every now and then in uh, in Call of Cthulhu, particularly thanks to the influence of, of stories like Pickman's Model. Uh, but yeah, it, that's that's a, a small facet. Whereas I can see it being a fairly dominant theme in uh, in a Chambers game, and and similarly, you know, the, the way we have nineteen twenties Massachusetts as a default setting in Call of Cthulhu, I, I guess it would be eighteen nineties Paris and eighteen nineties New York uh, for this Chambers game. And you know, eighteen nineties Paris, then you know, obviously the the art scene would play a huge part in that. I think it's interesting that I, I know I'm going back to the the, the Yellow King. Uh, I do know that there, there are four settings, and and the overarching theme is the imposition of a of an alternative timeline on our Earth, and going into four different periods. So there's a there's a, a, a mm. there's a military one which is the the Great War of 1947, and uh, there's the um, that there's basically what appears to be a, a um, Modern social media conspiracies type stuff uh, for the for the most modern one, uh, and the start though I think is is based in Paris. It is around the art scene, I believe. Saying that, saying this again, that is a particular take on the King in Yellow. That's um, it's base. It's almost like a, a a subset of of Lovecraftian horror because it's uh, altering the entire timeline. I think it, it. I think it's a really compelling thing to play in, uh, and, and I had a sort of similar ideas for the game that I would want to run. My, mm. my game was much more about um, the King in Yellow being a meme, which uh, I'll, I'll talk about in, uh, in, in 
later in this podcast when, when I record that bit. But did, in fact, do I remember you mentioning memes in one of the episodes? Yeah, I, it, it's certainly something I've seen come up a few times in in you know reference to the king in yellow. Um, you know, the idea that you know it sort of spreads like a meme. We, we were talking about it. I think the idea that you know the color yellow itself was a meme in the 1890s yes. you know the, the, the whole idea of the yellow 90s and the yellow book and you know the, taking its name from uh, you know this this sort of mythical yellow book and the picture of dorian gray and the yellow wallpaper and and uh, yeah we discussed whether this was related to um the prevalence of syphilis at the mm-hmm. time and its association with um you know with with sexual decadence uh so so yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be there as a uh, as a meme from the outset. Uh, so I think it's it, yeah, it, it certainly works in in the larger scale as a meme. Oh. Uh, certainly, when when I've used it as an element in gaming, that's that's an aspect that I've seized upon, and I I know I'm far from unique in that. Yeah, when I was thinking of um, thinking of sort of turning the king and yellow, my particular version into the game that I would like to run, I had a couple of ideas, and one of them was I thought about the the reason why it gets passed around um and uh, and the thinking that well there's basically going to be two different kinds of people who pass around the king in yellow because if, if it is such a scandalous and dangerous book there's going to be a whole bunch of people who pass it around for a bit of a bit of a laugh not really knowing what it does and not really believing that reading a book could actually be harmful and then there's also going to be a, a whole load of people, well, a cult of people who actually know how powerful it is. And for whatever reason, they are choosing to be vectors for the book and, and propagate it. Yeah, I mean, you can almost look at parallels there with internet culture these days. And you're looking at um, sites like 4chan, where you, you have this bizarre confluence of, of people who you know, use the most horrible things uh, ironically because it's funny and you've got the you know people who are drawn to you know the same horrible things entirely um entirely unironically uh and and you know the two tend to blend together so you know the the, the whole idea that you know the, the sort of white supremacist culture grew up uh in in 4chan and other related sites because you know some people were doing it just to be shocking but then you know that made it a comfortable environment for real white supremacists and after some time you you couldn't really tell the difference the two bled over into each other well, i've i've not thought about it in those terms but i can i totally see where you're coming from wow so one of the things that we i don't think we've uh, really touched on uh, well, maybe touched on a little bit, but just just mentioned it is the kind of uh, the overall cosmology and the top down sort of interpretation of the Carcosa mythos. And again, there's, uh, my, my habit for viewing it as a as a sort of a location somewhere in the stars. Uh, a lot of it comes from my, my viewpoint of Lovecraft stories as uh, as science fiction as much as they are a horror. But if we are taking a top-down approach to the cosmology, is there actually a structure mm. there, I think, is, is the first question. Because at the moment, everything we've talked about is very much at human scale, and it is about, as you said, morality. Mm. So could we, can we even sensibly apply any kind of cosmology on top of that? And, and are there any gods? I think, yes, we certainly can apply cosmology to it, and we can certainly extrapolate gods and, and so on. But I think this is all stuff that that we ourselves have to bring to the source material. You know, it's it's not there in concrete terms in the source material. Uh, Chambers 
uses all these images and these names and these these locations uh, for effect. He doesn't define what any of them are. You know, the, the classic example is Haster. So he borrowed the name Haster from uh, a story called Haita the Shepherd uh, by Ambrose Bierce, in which Haster is this benign god of the shepherds. But the way that um, the way that Chambers uses it, it sounds more like a place. But even that, I mean, by reading the text, I mean we're inferring that it's a place. He doesn't state that it is. It's just from the larger context. It seems to be either a place or maybe even the name of a star. It doesn't seem to be a god. Yeah, I, th- I think it's. Um, I consider it as a sort of like uh, Aldebaran and the, the Hades. Uh, you know, it's Aldebaran and the Hades. Of course, they they all located in Taurus, and so. Uh, you assume that this is a, a proximal star to that, and then Carcosa is, you know, over there, whatever Carcosa is. Um, and and I, I assume that, you know, Hasta, mm. the, the illusion is that, that Hasta is a star. I mean, there's gods as stars, uh, I, a thing I've always been fascinated by. Um, and if you want to talk about sort of the impossible mm. vast intelligences and, and, body, and, and massive bodies that for which humans are insignificant, then planets and stars are the obvious uh, the obvious um, things to point to. Uh, one of the things I really love, I, I love that concept of the Hyades singing and the idea that it is actually sort of a communication from stellar bodies who are actually approximation to gods. Uh, but of course, we yes. don't get anything other than other than um, Casilda's song. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's a mention as well in uh, the Yellow Sign of how uh, you know Mr. Scott and Tessie have uh, decoded the the the, the, uh, the mystery of the Hyades, uh, and as a result, now seem to be in telepathic communication with each yes. other. Um, so, you know, th- th- that seems to tie in with the song of the Hyades, and but. <laughs> Again, you know, this is this is Chambers using loose terms and inviting us to to impose our own meaning upon them. Uh, and and yeah, I, mean, I I really like that idea of the stars as living entities. Um, you know, it's it's something that we see explored in Lovecraft uh, in Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got um, oh, I can't remember the character's name, but this uh, sort of madman in an asylum who has all these you know, fantastic dreams of being a stellar entity and you know, sort of the the earthbound you know, embodiment of this star. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's a really powerful image and something that yeah, you could definitely do a lot with in a game. And I think they have one of my favourite implementations of um, uh, one of the things I think that makes Lamentations of the Flame Princess the game stand out is the the way that the contact outer sphere spell is phrased because you're actually conversing with known stars which know everything because they absorb mm-hmm. all information presumably as as, as you know, electromagnetic radiation or something. So I, I thought that was particularly inspired. And the idea that then you, you can use that to connect human and cosmic intelligences. Yeah, but I, I, I've really been drawn to the the ambiguity in Chambers. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, you, you mentioned Lamentations of the Flame Princess. I, uh, th- there's a book that I've been working on for an embarrassingly long period of time, and it's going to be at least another year before I've finished it, uh, a book called William Shakespeare's The King in Yellow. 
Oh, yeah, and, I was going to ask you about that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, uh, yeah, as, as I'm sure you know, it, Mr. Raji will tell you uh, in, in fairly vitriolic terms, an incredibly overdue book. Uh, but um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I wanted to do with that was to sort of strip away everything that anyone else other than Chambers had written, go back to those those core elements, elements that, that Chambers had created and then try to impose my own interpretations on them, you know, leaving out any Lovecraft or Derlith or Lynn Carter or anyone who'd come after that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I was particularly drawn to the ambiguity of whether um, you know, certain names referred to places or or people or gods, and you know, I, I, I figured why choose that? You know, it, it, what I've gone for is this idea that you know it, it's it's all of the above, that you know that you, you have these these places uh, that are embodiments of gods, that are embodiments of the powers of stars, that you know sort of exist on all these multiple levels simultaneously. Um, you know, each one represents different. Uh, you know, well, yeah, no, I won't explain exactly what they mean, um, but they 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 represent different aspects of the cosmology. Mm. Um, but you know, you can interact with them. You know, as gods, you can inter- you can visit them as places, and you can you can communicate with them as individuals. Well, that's I mean, that sounds. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. It also sounds terrific. I, I just um, I did I did three episodes on. On Imagico by Clive Barker, and one of the one of the key things in that oh, is, yes. is the, um, the cities are also gods, or, or at least one city is a god, and another city is regarded as a god with its Eusodorex, uh, with its um, its citizens basically abasing themselves before the gods by living in it, and uh, and this whole idea that it, it is a place and it has spiritual significance, but it also has physical substance. Well, that, that, that's got echoes of Barker's stories uh, in the hills, the cities as well, hasn't it? Certainly, where where you have people actually, you know, banding together to to become cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's in. I think that's in the the books of blood that I don't have. I remember. I I do remember reading reading the graphic novel of that, and that being really, really great. And it was just really good artwork, and this, yeah. this idea about all these villages netted together and actually fighting each other. Yes, one one of the weirdest things he's written. <laughs> Probably the weirdest is because it's it's you know why did they do it? The the unfathomable motivation is the thing that makes it. Yes. The, the senselessness is the thing that makes it particularly horrific. And c- coming back coming back to this idea about uh, cosmology, then I think in summary. And you know, tell me what you think. Though we can say that there are weird mm. mystical places which have um, they have names and they have weight and significance, and people can view them as uh, deities or places. But certainly, things uh, certainly nexuses of power, um, names to conjure with. I would say they're separate from the tattered king, which has very much a sort of uh, well. Uh, if you want to, if you want to think of it in moralistic terms, it's a, an incarnation of the devil. And and so you've got a, a totally different perspective on um, you know, a moralistic gods versus uncaring gods, and I'm not sure there's yeah. much more to go on, based if we just go back to the four stories. Unless, well, there, there there isn't, but I think you know that that is the thing that makes them 
so appealing uh you know as to to writers to game designers to you know to to gms uh to basically anyone who likes engaging with with other worlds and and you know creating stuff out of them because what what chambers has done there is he's given us a lot of playing pieces that can mean anything he's given us a general theme he's given us a mood uh he's he's given us you know certain certain tangible elements but most of it is just smoke and mirrors and we we can do anything with that quite i i think uh, we've been talking for a sort of uh, a little over an hour now um i would like to ask one one more question which is more to do with the the fiction going forward and it's really who is mm. your? Do you have a? Can you think of a dream team of derivative authors? Let's say a bunch of people who who were writing yeah. the style of Chambers, and I'm, I'm thinking of current authors, um, alive or dead, who whose fiction is in keeping with the tone, but also authors who might make an interesting contrast to uh, to Chambers. Have you have you got any anyone in mind? Oh, I've got a whole bunch in mind, I'm afraid, uh, for for different reasons. I mean, the most obvious one is one who did actually write, you know, a couple of stories inspired by Chambers, and that's Carl Edward Wagner. Uh I I think River of Night's Dreaming is probably the single best King in Yellow story ever written. Uh, He wrote one other called uh, I've Come to Speak with You Again, which, you know, uh, is interesting, but uh, it's one of his later pieces and his later work wasn't quite so powerful. But... um, yeah, if if while he was at the height of his writing powers, and you know, before the alcoholism had, had robbed him of a lot of his magic, um, if he'd written more of in the chambers mould, I, I think you know that that would have been fantastic. Okay. I, the the other writer from around that time who I I don't you know never wrote any anything I think inspired directly by anyone else, who I'd love to have seen tackle these themes would have been Robert Aikman. Right. Because Aikman, Aikman was a master of mood and ambiguity and and dream logic, and I think an Aikman view of Carcosa, you know, would have been absolutely nightmarish. Uh, if if we take you know the idea of Carcosa being this this otherworldly dream, this this nightmare that we walk into, this sort of shifting landscape, um, you know, all these impossible elements, I. I can't think of another writer who probably could have brought that to life the way that Aikman could have. Um, in terms of people who'd who'd do, you know, create interesting contrasts. I, you know, we've mentioned Clive Barker a number of times, mm-hmm. and I think, yeah, Barker, you know, it, 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 perhaps we see elements of this with the Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser. Um, that he perhaps you know has has got little hints of of you know that that whole. Carcosa mythos side of things, but then makes it a very visceral, bloody affair uh, in a way that you know Chambers wasn't. I, I um, think um, I, I think Barker is, is he has a couple of things in common. What we've been talking about, um, yes, you say it's visceral and bloody, fair enough. Um, but he manages to keep things very much on human scale, even when the mm-hmm. concepts are are vast and strange and. and you know, the, the, it's difficult to get a holistic view of the entire cosmos that he's talking about. 
so I can see. I, I think you're right. It'd be a very, it'd be a good fit for that. And he does talk about um, transformation as well. Yeah. And and I think a, a, another writer who w- would be a very unlikely pairing, who I'd just like to see tackle this, would be Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, because, <laughs> because I, uh, American Psycho, I, as well as being a repellently nasty book, is one of the most nightmarish you know, first-person depictions of the the breakdown of subjective reality that I remember reading. That, uh, as as nasty as the, you know, the 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 brutal scenes in that are, what left me shaken for a long time after reading that book was this sense that um, you know, I was unraveling along with Patrick Bateman as I mm-hmm. read the book, and yeah, I, I think yeah, if if um, if he were to write a King in the Yellow story, I mean, from the point of view of someone like Castaigne, he could really put us in their head, you know, really show us what it's like to be transformed by exposure to the King in the Yellow. That is a, that is a great call. If, um, I, um, years ago when I was an undergraduate, someone did the, uh, just a, for a laugh, the character sheet for the Bretton Easton Ellis role-playing game. And so I, I, I re- <laughs> oh, reproduced brilliant. it. Now, it came up uh, when I was chatting with, with Todd about um, Fractopia. And that's Todd Foley, and uh, he was. We were talking. We were talking about how to. Oh, right. we were talking about how to represent characters with sort of a, in a system agnostic way, where you talk about a lot of the the properties that are important, like um, what does your living space look like, uh, who are you affiliated with, what's your reputation like, and that sort of thing. And of course, uh, and and I was sort of. I said it for a laugh. I said, "Oh yeah, Brett Easton role playing <laughs> game where you you talk about um, it's all about sort of your your credit rating, your your business cards, your your um, psychiatrist, your prescription medications, your non prescription medications, your father's prescription medications, your mother's prescription medications, your lovers and, and STDs contracting, all this sort of stuff, which was all all just yes. you know a, a bit of a laugh and, and over the top. But then I was thinking, well, actually." One of the one of the things we don't a lot of the time we talk about when we write a character sheet down we write it in numbers, and actually thinking of properties that we want to uh, boxes that we want people to write descriptions in like when did you first pick up a copy of the pink the king in yellow and how far did you read into it and I mean, asking questions like that if you want to tie your characters together to the start so I was thinking in terms of uh, of, of you know. What Brett Easton Ellis does in the terms of the, mm. the the combination of the superficial and the um, really quite profound reflections on character is is one of the things I think there's a, there'd be a takeaway for that. So I think that's a that's a great call. Um, and uh, okay, any any anyone else? Anyone else you can recommend? Yeah, I mean, there were two others who came to mind. I, and, and another take on the psychological point of view uh, would be Ramsey Campbell, uh, mm-hmm. because I, I, I think I think few people are quite as gifted as as Campbell is at creating a a world that feels increasingly wrong by degrees, where everything is just you know everything is grating, everyone is needlessly hostile, um, where you know. It, everything is just going wrong mm. and uh, yeah i think that applied again to the world of someone who's who's read uh the king in yellow would would be quite nightmarish um oh. I, and the final choice i had uh, is uh, one of my current favorite writers uh, nathan ballingrud um who 
he what, what he's particularly gifted at, or at least in his first collection of short stories, North American Lake Monsters, uh, he is very, very good at um, sort of rooting uh, all these these horrors in you know very human terms and human problems and human psychology all these sort of damaged people who suddenly have intrusions of um the extraordinary of the supernatural into their lives but you write the one did you write the one about the werewolf yes yes uh, wild acre and so yeah yeah i think i think he could really he could really do something with that and um yeah his his second collection of short stories wounds is very different and it's, it, it, it reminds me more of the books of blood than anything else uh, uh-huh. so yeah i think between those two different strands of his writing he could you know turn in a a king in yellow story that would be both emotionally authentic and absolutely nightmarish uh, that's a really good call and and i remember and i really enjoyed the episode where you you talked about that, and, and I think well, you, too. You did an interview with the with the author. Yes, that right? yes, yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember that because uh, I was spending an awful lot of time driving back and forth to visit my dad because he was in and out of hospital, and so I was re- listening to an awful lot of podcasts. Uh, and I was listening to that one. I remember driving back in the pitch dark um, through uh, rural Gloucestershire. That was uh, that was an experience. Was, oh was gosh, good. yes. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been a really terrific discussion. Very interesting. I've uh, got lots of great uh, links to follow up. So thanks for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Ralph. It's it's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, it'd be great if you could like, share, review, subscribe, or just comment. Music for the podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrissabriskie.com. Check the show notes. Bye.